I'd like you to open with me in your Bibles again this morning. After a few more Sundays, they'll just fall open to Genesis 1 without any help, probably. But uh, open your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to be continuing this morning our study of the character of God. In fact, this week, and, and there's still more I want to say next week. So we, we have a couple more weeks, this Sunday and next Sunday. Not even then will we exhaust the study of the character of God from Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. But at least we'll have a good overview of all that God himself has revealed about himself in these passages. Last week, as we were studying it, we looked at um, some of the things that stand out like God is transcendent. You remember, he's, he's out there. He's huge and, and powerful and beyond the universe. And He is infinite in His person. He has no bounds. And He is eternal uh, in the heavens. He is timeless and rules over the realm of time. We also discovered that He is omnipotent. He, He made the universe. And He made everything there is to make. He has all the power. We learned that He is omnipresent. He is present everywhere at the same time. It's amazing. We learned that uh, he is omniscient. He knows everything there is to know. And so much so that he cannot even learn because he already knows it all. Uh, He is the one who is all-knowing. We learned that he is creative and that he is actively involved in his universe. But I want to go further into the text this morning. We're going to go back to Genesis uh, chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. And then the devil a little further. And the two aspects of God's character that I want to focus on this morning is that God, our God, is a triune God, one God in three persons, and that He is also a relational God. Uh, Personal God, relational God, He's not a force, but He is a real person, and He relates to us in a very, very personal way. How do we know in the Bible that God is three persons in one? And furthermore, how in the world do we get that out of the first couple of verses of Genesis chapter 1? Well, if you look in Genesis 1, verse 1, and we look at those first four words, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the first hint that we have one God existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, occurs in the fourth word. Because interestingly enough, that word God is in the plural. The Hebrew word God in the singular is El. But in the plural, it's Elohim. And right out of the gate, we're introduced to the fact that in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. We're automatically uh, kind of uh, drawn into the idea that there's something going on here that's a mystery, but that God is one God, but more than one in some strange way. 
And then as we begin to get further into the passage, some other things begin to stand out out for us. For example, look in verse 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form, and it was void. And the Spirit of God was brooding over the surface or the face of the deep. The the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Now, last week, we looked at that word moving, and we talked about the fact that it it really is brooding. And we looked at the uh, couple of times that it occurs in Scripture, one of those being where the Scripture describes the mother eagle brooding or moving or watching over her young. And the, the idea of brooding implies intelligence, attentiveness, thoughtfulness, protectiveness, uh, kind of a, a hovering that is active and involved. And we find that God has a spirit who is not exactly the same person that we meet in verse 1, but in verse 2, God has a spirit who is brooding over the surface of the waters, and this spirit is also full of personality. He is thoughtful. He is attentive. He is evaluating and assessing, if you please. He is active on the surface. God who is up there creating, but His Spirit who is here hovering. So, we're introduced in these first two verses to the great big God and to the Spirit of God who is also active in the universe. And then in in verse 3, Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, this uh, introduction to God the Son is a little more obtuse. In other words, it doesn't stand out at us right here in Genesis. But we actually find that John, in his gospel, clarifies this for us. And we realize that by divine inspiration... Moses, God through Moses, was introducing us to the Trinity in the first three verses of Genesis. Because John tells us in his Gospel, and listen very closely to the wording, John chapter 1, verse 1, In beginning was the Word. The what? The Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word... Was God? The Word was God? God said, let there be light, and the Word was God? Well, who is this Word? The same was in the beginning with God, verse 2. All things were created by Him, or through Him. And apart from Him, nothing was made that was made. In Him was life. Wait a minute, the Word is now a Him? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. This Word is a person. Not just an abstraction, not just a sentence, it it is a person. He is a person. And as we 
go down through that first chapter of John's Gospel, we read fairly shortly, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of an only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we discover that the Word is a person, the person is Jesus, who is God the Son. But we also learn in verse 1 that He is face to face with the Father and that He is fully God in every sense of the Word. So isn't it amazing that all the way back in Genesis, in the first three verses of the first book of the Bible, in the creation narrative, we are introduced to the Trinity right out of the gate. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the surface of the water, and the Spirit of God was brooding over the surface of the deep, and God said, let there be light, All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that has been made. And there was light, and the Word became flesh. That Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The evidence of the singular plurality, one God in three persons, is further demonstrated as we move forward into the text. Look with me in verse 26 of chapter 1. Now, I'm going to tell you in a minute why this is also important, but it is important that we think of our God correctly as a triune God. But in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then verse 27 says, And God created man in His own image, and in the likeness of God, or the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. What is this business of let us make man in our image? Some people have looked at that passage and said, well, God was talking to the angels. God was talking to somebody else up there in the courts of heaven, you know. He was looking around at the heavenly host and he was talking to them, let us make man. But wait a minute, did the angels participate in our creation? I don't read anything about that. I don't see where angels had anything to do with making me. Let us make man, let us make us. The angels are going to be involved in this? I don't think so. Well, who is the us? And then he says, you go to the next verse, so he made man in his image. And and all of a sudden you find God talking to himself in a very interesting way, in the plural form. In fact, the word God, Elohim, again, is used here. It is a plural noun. Elohim created man in his own image. And then if you turn to chapter 2, verse 4, we're, we're told again, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. 
Now, some of you have New American Standard Bibles, and different English translations use uh, different uh, ways of, of indicating what's going on. If you have a New American Standard Bible, th- do you notice that in your NASB or some of the other texts, the word Lord there is actually all capital letters? The O-R-D are smaller, but they're still capital letters with a capital L. The convention is, so that it, when we're, as English readers, we can figure this out, the convention is when Lord, the word Lord appears, capital L, then capital O-R-D, the Hebrew word behind it is Yahweh or Jehovah. And when the word God appears, G-O-D, re- referring to our God, the living God, that word is translating the Hebrew word Elohim. And so what you actually have in chapter 4, verse 2 is, this is the day that Jehovah Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Now, what, what is the significance of that? Well, it has to do with the fact that Yahweh, or Jehovah, is the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. Why don't we turn to that passage so that you can look at it with me in Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, God gives Moses his name. It's, it's an important name. And it's the proper noun by which God wants to be known or referred. Look in chapter 3 of Exodus, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me. Now they may say to me, What is his name? Now, I don't think everybody in the nation of Israel had forgotten who God was, but I think quite a few of them had. It had been 400 years that they had been in Egypt. I mean, Joseph was like 400 years ago, and that's a long time. Just to put it in terms of American history, I mean, the Puritans were here, and the revolution had not taken place. The United States you know, was, it wasn't even fully formed as a nation. That goes back a long time. And, and I'm not saying that they had all forgotten who God was, but Moses was rather concerned. He had fled Egypt with a, uh, a, you know, a warrant out for his arrest for murder. He had been gone for 40 years. Not only did the Israelites not necessarily remember exactly who God was, but they really didn't know who Moses was. And he's going to go back and he's going to tell them, God told me to come tell Pharaoh to let you folks go. And they're, the first thing out of their mouth is they're going to say, who? Who is this God that sent you back here? And so God says to Moses, when he says, what shall I say to them? God says, I am who I am. When you go back to Egypt, you just tell them that. I am who I am. There were four Hebrew letters that God revealed to Moses that are derived from the Hebrew verb to be. And in essence, what God was saying is, I am always being who I always am being. 
Tell them I am the eternal one. Tell them I am the self-existing one. Tell them I am. That's all you need to know. And that translation uh, that no one exactly knows how to pronounce came out as Yahweh or Jehovah. This is my name. I am the self-existing one. You go tell them that I am uh, sent me. And um, thus God furthermore said to Moses, verse 15, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the Elohim of your fathers. See, he says, this is my name. And I am the God. There's that plural again. I am the Elohim of your fathers. I am the Elohim of Abraham, the Elohim of Isaac, the Elohim of Jacob. He has sent me to you. And the difference between the two terms is God reveals Himself in, as Yahweh as the self-existing eternal One in the, in the heavenlies. I am. And He reveals Himself as God, as the powerful one. And in His name God, it always occurs in the plural, while Yahweh always occurs in the singular. You may wonder, what's the big deal about that name? I am. But it really becomes clear in terms of who He is. When again we go to John's Gospel, and Jesus uses this same verb, noun, phrase in the language of the New Testament that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. When Jesus says things like, I am the living water. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. But I think my favorite passage, and and those of you that have listened to me for any length of time, you know this. I love the passage. In John's Gospel, when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Judas comes with the temple guard and servants in the Roman cohort, and they're going to take Jesus into custody, into what is going to become the night of the mockery of a trial, and followed by a day of crucifixion. And they've come to arrest Jesus. Jesus and his disciples have gone out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus has been there praying in the agonizing hours before he is taken into custody is not quite the word. Because here's what happens. This group of soldiers and guards and temple servants show up at the entryway to the garden. And uh, the disciples immediately realize something is amiss and Uh, They've been kind of hyped up for this event. And Peter is all ready to come to the fore. He whips out his sword and he lops off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. And we read how Jesus, you know, kind of reaches down in the dust and shakes the ear off and puts it back on the side of his head. 
Good thing Malchus moved his head or Jesus would have been putting his head back on the top of his shoulders because Peter was not aiming for his ear. And there's this dramatic miracle of tenderness and compassion for those that are about to arrest him. And then Jesus asked this interesting question because he knew the answer to it. I think he wanted to find out if they knew the answer to it. He said, whom do you seek? And they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. Not I am he. Not I am the one. He just says, I am. Same name at the burning bush. And what does this group of soldiers and guards do? They fall on the ground. They, the mention of His powerful name. They fall down. Friends, they did not take Jesus into custody. He volunteered to let them get up and He went with them. They had no authority or power over Him because they had met the I Am whom shall I say sent me? God, you tell them, I am. This speaks to us of God's self-existence, of His, of His infinity, of His eternity, of His glory, of His majesty. And yet, He reveals Himself as I am the Elohim in the plural sense of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you have any doubt still that our God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I invite you to turn over to Deuteronomy, a few more books in the Bible to your right. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And verse 4. This passage is one of the great uh, watershed passages for the Jews. It's called the Shema, and it is the testimony that separated the Jews then from all the other polytheistic many-gods nations of the world. Once again, it separated them after the exile from all of that craziness of the Greeks and the Romans as they declared their allegiance and loyalty to the one true God of heaven. There is only one God. And the testimony of that is in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. When God speaks through Moses and Israel repeats this phrase, over and over again, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And I remind you again to read the word Lord as Yahweh or Jehovah and the word God as Elohim. Let me read it for you again. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our Elohim. Yahweh is one. And yet, if you translated it literally in English, it would sound like this. Hear, O Israel, 
Yahweh is our gods. Yahweh is one. And you say, how can that be? And then we discover, as we look at other ancient Semitic languages, that Hebrew in the Scriptures of the Old Testament is the only Semitic language that represents the name of God in the plural. But every time it occurs, it is accompanied by a singular verb form or a singular pronoun or a singular adjective. It is consistently translated as a singular unit, but the, the, the basic meaning of the word is plural in nature. What is the teaching throughout the Scripture? That there is only one God. There is only one. And yet, throughout the Scripture, we have the testimony that the Holy Spirit is God. And that Jesus Christ, His only Son, is God the Son. And that we relate to the Father. Jesus said, My Father is at work, and I am working even until now. When He prayed, it was, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, the one in the heavenlies. Glory be to your name. And then he prays in John 17, Father, glorify me together with you, with the glory we shared. And yet God says, I will not share my glory with another. But Jesus is God in every sense of the word. And so, all through Scripture, we are reminded, as John says in his late letters, I am writing to you, little children, because you have come to know the Father. I am writing to you, older, mature saints, because you have come to know Jesus, the One from beginning. Throughout the Scripture, we have the Undeniable testimony that God exists as one God in three persons. Why is this so important for us? Well, first of all, we understand that God, who is three, always acts in concert, in unity, in all that He does. And we find that redemption and salvation was a cooperative effort of the Holy Trinity. As the Son of God came to die for our sins, taking humanity upon Himself and going to the cross for us, the infinite God-man dying in our place, we find the Holy Spirit opening our eyes to this truth and understanding, convicting us of sin, giving us faith to believe, and causing us to be born again. When we pray, we're told that the Lord Jesus Christ always sits at the right hand of the Father, 
ever living in His resurrected glory to pray for us, to make intercession for us. And then Paul says, we don't always know how to pray. Sometimes, and you've had those times, some of you have had them very recently, you don't know what to say. You know you ought to pray. You, you have this burden to, to connect with God, but you don't even know how to begin. And Paul says in Romans chapter 8, we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Holy Spirit helps us with groanings and utterings too deep for words as He intercedes through and with and for the saints according to the mind and will of God. And when we pray, we come to the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who lives in us in the new birth as we're born again. God with us in His very presence. Another reason why we need to understand that there is a triune God. Some years ago, many years ago, I read Francis Schaeffer's book, He is There and He is Not Silent. And it introduced me for the first time to the concept that God, well, not the first time that I thought that God was a relational God or that He was a God of love or a God of communion and communication and all of that, but it was the first time that it dawned on me that God had to be more than one person if there was going to be communication and love and communion and all of that going on, because remember the name He revealed to Moses? I am. I am the self-existent One. I don't need anything else for my existence. I am totally self-sufficient. I am God. Some people have said, the reason God made human beings is because He was lonely. And and He needed someone to relate to. And, and so He made us because He was lonely. <clears throat> Tilt. No. <laughs> That's bad theology. The Bible says, He is self-existing. Yahweh, He needs nothing. Well, how? where does love come from? Where does communion come from? Where, I'm not talking about the bread and the cup now. I'm talking about the intimacy of fellowship and, and, and harmony. Where, where does this come? Who is the let us make man in our image stuff? Where is this coming from? Because somehow in a mystery that is beyond our capacity to fathom, God, the self-existing One, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they love each other. And they commune with each other. And they enjoy each other. And they have relationship with each other in the Holy Trinity. And we are not necessary to the equation. And if that makes you feel bad, consider the fact that while God does not need you, He wants you. He loves you. He desires you. And there is a difference. But what a glorious truth that my God 
did make me, and he loves me. And he gave me the capacity to share in some measure in that love and that intimacy and that communion. Our God is a triune God revealed throughout the Scripture as such and necessary in the essence of His being and constantly affirmed throughout the Bible. But then also, our God is a personal God and He is a relational God. You know, we talked last week about His creative nature that is revealed in in, uh, Genesis chapter 1. But the next thing we discover is that God is talking. He's using language. He is communicating. He's forming sentences. That is an obvious characteristic of personality. Oh, I, I know that animals have ways of communicating with one another to a certain extent. But not like we do. To, to conceive of ideas and to use language to communicate those ideas and, and to think about making something and to talk about it, that's quite uniquely personality. It's quite uniquely human. It's also godlike. And we find in Genesis in the beginning, God created and then God said... And all of a sudden we find that He is a personal God, not just a force. And I hope that you kind of get this as a side feature. Besides our study in Genesis, it is amazing when you simply take one verse of Scripture and sit in the presence of God and think about it. By the way, that's called meditation. That's The right way to meditate. Not that Eastern stuff, you know, where you sit funny and and close your eyes and go, mum, 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 mum. That's not meditation. That's dangerous, in fact. But Christian meditation is when you take a verse, a portion of Scripture, you sit in the presence of God, and you think about it in His presence. And it's amazing what He begins to show you. I just want you to consider the sentence in verse 2, or in verse, uh, verse 3, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. In verse 4, And God saw the light, that it was good. First of all, God spoke using language. That implies a mind. Would you agree with me? That implies a mind. And when he spoke, he said, let there be, and there was. That implies a will. He made a choice. I want to do something. I'm not just going to think about it. I'm going to take action. There's a choice. And then, he looked at what he had done, and he said, this is good. That's not only assessment and evaluation, but it is emotional satisfaction. I like this. This is good. You know? All of a sudden we find in just two sentences that God's personality is revealed as mind and will and emotion. But more than that, He is relational. 
God said, let us make man in our image. And so, He did. And then God said in Genesis 2.18, it is not good for the man to be alone. Now, we're going to delve into this more deeply when we're talking on different things, but I just, I just want to say up front here, it's not like God is going along creating things and saying, oh my goodness, I missed something. That guy's down there all by himself. I wonder what's missing. Let me think. Let's check out the animals, see if any of them fit. No, that doesn't work. Okay. No, none of that happened with God. God is telling us a story as He reveals the narrative that He wants to pull it. We need to discover it's not good to be alone. We need each other. We are relational people at various levels of intimacy, from marriage to, to children to friendships. Whatever. We need one another. We're made to be in relationship. We're made to be in relationship with God. God said it is not good to be alone. That tells me that God Himself, we're made in His image, God is a relational God. He wants us to, like Him, have communion. Have fellowship. And so, He made Eve. And throughout these first chapters we find that God is having conversations with Adam and Eve. And then we come to that sad conversation in Genesis chapter 3, after they have made a very bad choice. And they have eaten of the forbidden fruit. They have tried to cover themselves up with leaves and they're not doing a very good job and they're hiding and God comes for a stroll in the garden in the cool of the day. The implication of the passage is that this was kind of a custom, that, that, that God and, and Adam and Eve kind of took a walk together every day and God comes for his stroll and he's walking through the garden and Adam and Eve hear the sound of him, and they run and hide. And God says, Adam, where are you? Once again, God is not looking for information. He knows where Adam is. Adam does not know where Adam is. That's the problem. Adam is now in a condition that we call lost. He doesn't really have a clue where his life is headed. And God comes looking for him because he is a relational God. And I want you to know this morning that that one verse, Genesis 3.9, tells the story of the whole rest of the Bible. Because in all the rest of the Bible, it is the story of God coming after His human beings, His men, His women, His man, His woman. God looking for us. Adam, where are you? Mary, where are you? Marge, where are you? Tom, where are you? Every one of us that 
has been found so that we are no longer lost, are found because God came and said, where are you? He wants us to come back into relationship with him. Aren't you glad that our God is a relational God? You know, some people say, there's no way God, if God made the universe, there's no way he can have a personal relationship with human beings. That's not possible. He'd have to be big and way out there and he can't get down here with us. That's just stupid people. They're limiting God. They think they're making him so out there. And what they're actually doing is saying that he can't do something. He made me. Of course he can connect with me. Of course he can talk to me. He gave me language. Where do you think that came from? Go back to the Tower of Babel. All of the languages of Babel came from the same place. God made us. And of course he can talk to us and communicate with us. I wish somebody would find that and communicate with this. <laughs> and so, God is still asking the question, where are you? Where are you? And I want to tell you this morning that every one of us in this room fit into one of three categories. We're either still hiding in the bushes and we have never been found. We're still really lost. And God this morning is looking for you. Not because He doesn't know where you are, but because you don't know where you are. You don't know the road you're on. You don't know the destiny that it's taking you to. You're lost. And God is coming and He's asking, where are you? I love you. I want to be in relationship with you. Or, you're, you're found. You've had that initial connection with God and you have turned to Him and received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you have come to a saving knowledge of God, but you're missing appointments with Him. You're not having those strolls in the cool of the day. You're not in fellowship, really. He's just kind of there somewhere, and, and you know Him, but not really deep. And God is saying to you, where are you? I thought we had a meeting. Where were you? I missed you. God wants to be in relationship with you. He wants to be your constant companion. Or maybe you are happily in the third group and God knows your name and you know His and you are walking together in fellowship. You are found and you are together for the journey. Where are you this morning? Which one of those describes you? Will you, not literally, I'm talking your heart now, will you kind of raise your hand out of the bushes and say, God, I'm here. Uh, yeah, I'm lost. 
and I want to come home. Or, God, I missed our appointment. I'm over here. I was busy doing something else. I want to be in connection with you. Because we have a God who not only made us, but wants to walk with us every day of our lives. Father, thank you that you are a triune God, a holy God, a majestic God, a personal God, and a relational God. And that your longing is for us to know you and to be in fellowship with you. We thank you that you're not so far out there that you cannot also be right here. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.